All right, good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? What's that? Good. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. It is Christmas time. And I don't know about you, but when I walk in here and I see the stage all decorated like that and I look back and I have a great view of the tree back there and it's just absolutely fantastic. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Um, so if you don't know me, my name is Nathan Gherkins. Um, I am a worship leader here uh, at uh, Colorado Life Church and sometimes uh, Josh and I get to trade off sermons here. Um, and uh, if you're new here or you're just visiting, then we are uh, in a series called Wrapped in Rags and talking about the uh, dignity that Christ brought uh, to the world, the effect and the resonating impacts that he brought to the world around him um, and to the world uh, around us today. And just the ways that Jesus's life affected not only the people around him and the, the lives of the people who follow him today, but also just resonated and impacted the culture around him during that day and continued to affect the culture that we now see around us um, this morning. So to start off, as we're talking about uh, this, this idea of Jesus um, and uh, his, his birth and his coming affecting us and our, the culture that we live in today, I want you to think back really quick to your childhood. And think about, and like, about the age of the kids that are in there, hooping and hollering, have a great time. And think back, like, is there, just think back to that one, like, really special blanket or stuffed animal. Or maybe it was a, a Tonka truck or a toy. Who here had, like, a stuffed animal? Show of hands. Mike had a stuffed animal. Sisu. All right, anyone have, a, like, a blanket? Blanket? Yeah, my siblings and I, we all had blankets. That was our thing. We had these blankets called binkies. Um, and I'm telling you now, honestly, I had mine up until I was about 13 years old, and I lost it, and I would have had it for longer, and the story probably would have been more embarrassing had I not lost it. So, you know, hindsight, it might have been the best. Um, but this blanket that I had, it was this light blue, very thin cotton blanket with a polyester trim around the edge, and I got it when I was like three or four years old. And again, I had it up until I was 13. And so this blanket, I had the same blanket by my side. I named it Bluebell for about 10 years. Yeah, I was very creative in naming. And I had it by my side for about 10 years of my life. And so over time, the blanket became more and more valuable to me. It was my binky. I took it everywhere with me, for, like within the house. My parents didn't let me bring it in the car, unfortunately. But I mean, when I was in the house, I would take it to bed with me. I would sleep with it at night. I would uh, have it on the couch with me if I was sick or not feeling well, or I would have it when I was doing my school. Like, it was absolutely inseparable to me, and I loved it. It was so valuable to me. And my parents and my family saw that same value as well. They, they didn't see this blanket that to others would only be worth like mopping up a spill or like cleaning some mud off your shoes before tossing in the garbage. No, what they saw was this threadbare, light blue, stained, ripped, torn, faded, worn blanket that I loved dearly. And so what they did was they treated it as valuable, uh, as it was valuable to me in the same way that it became valuable to them. If I lost it, they would help me find it. And when it was dirty or if it got stained or I dropped it outside in the dirt, then my mom would bring it inside and throw it into the laundry. And it became valuable to them because of how valuable it was to me. And so think back to that, that stuffed animal, that blanket, that toy, that little, that thing that you had when you were a young child that you loved so, so dearly. And then consider how did the people around you treat it who knew what it meant to you? 
How would someone who just saw it lying on the side of the road, how would they treat it if they didn't understand and see the value that you had in it? So we're in this series called Wrapped in Rags, as I, as I mentioned, where we're talking about how Jesus brought um, just like uh, in, in immense change to our culture. He changed the way that we see things. He changed the way that we see people. And even not just to those who follow him, but also to those that just, he, he changed the world itself around him. Um, and in, um, in this message today, I want to be talking about dignity the, and these, these three ideas that lead up to dignity. First of all, identity, and this should be up on the screen here. I can't really see the screen. Oh, there it is. Um, first of all, identity, and that leads to worth or value, and finally, that leads to dignity, the way that we, are treat, that we treat the things around us. That identity is who, who we are, who we are to ourselves, who we are to the world around us. And then through that identity, through who we see ourselves to be or through how the world around us sees us to be, we ascribe a certain value to it. It's just like, oh, I see you as valuable to me because you're useful in furthering my career. Or I see you as valuable to me because you make me warm and fuzzy when I hold your hand. Or I see you as valuable to me because I like the way that you make me feel, et cetera, et cetera. And then from there, based upon that worth and that value, we ascribe a dignity to it, a respect, a way that we treat others. And dignity, the, the definition in Webster's Dictionary is the quality of being worthy of honor or respect. But what I want to kind of zoom in on, make it a little bit more personal, is this definition of dignity. What you are worth to me dictates how I treat you. What you are worth to me is going to dictate how I treat you. And so based upon someone's identity to us, based upon the value and the worth that they hold because of who they are, then I will treat you in a certain way. And you, you see this concept in how we respect things that are ours, that are close to us, that are meaningful. Like, I love this dirty, dingy little blanket more so than any other person who would ever see that blanket because I respected it and I loved it and I thought that it was worth dignity because I loved it so much. How many of you have ever driven a rental car just a little bit harder than you have your own car? Right? It just, yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate the honesty. <laughs> so at this time, though, when we talk about the way that we treat people and the way that the people around us are, are how much the people around us are worth, at the time of Jesus' birth, human worth and human dignity was extremely segmented among the population. Certain groups were thought to be worth more or worth less or deserving of a certain amount of respect or honor um, because of simply who they were. Um, slavery at this time was extremely common. It was very common for people to own other people and think that that was a normal way of living life. Um, might makes right was the mindset of the day. If I had more power over you, if I could physically compel you to do what I wanted you to do, then I was in the right for it. And the Roman Empire, the ruling governing body over, over the, uh, the culture that, Jew, uh, that Jesus was born into, ruled with force and fear as their peacekeeping strategies. If they could exhort all the taxes out of the Jewish people that they could and rule with an iron fist, then that's exactly what they did. And so everything was based upon this might makes right. Certain people are worth dignity, certain people are worth respect, and others just simply aren't. 
That was the culture that Jesus was born into. And I want to zoom in really quick and just provide a little bit of context on some of these groups that were especially ostracized and existed both literally and figuratively out on the margins of society. And so the three groups that I want to look at here are women and children, the physically deformed or the chronically ill, and finally, the ceremonially unclean. So I'm gonna walk through each one of them and provide just a little bit of context. We can understand exactly how these groups in particular were seen as being worth dignity or respect or honor. So first of all, women and children. Well, children at this time were seen as, no offense to the kids in the room here, I was a kid too, I had a blanket at the time, and I was weak and incapable, dependent, and generally a nuisance, unless productive. That's how children were seen, Frankly, that's probably how I was when I was a little child. And the th but that was taken to an extreme. You remember like in the little house in the prairie times, like the whole children should be seen, not heard mentality. Of just like, until you can provide some economic benefit or kick it back to this family, until you can go and work in the fields or work in the blacksmith shop with your father, then you aren't really worth anything, anything to the family. You have to earn your right to be respected and honored and loved. Babies that were born with any sort of defect, any sort of illness that could prevent them from contributing to the family were often abandoned and left out to die. It was a practice called exposure, and it was extremely common in this day. And in short, women at this time were viewed very similarly as children. They too were seen as weak and dependent and incapable and generally not mentally able to reason or speak, or give a solid opinion. And they were cons the, the testimony of woman even was not even considered in the court of law. If, there was, if a woman had seen a crime and a man was on trial, she couldn't come and bring that testimony into law. It would be like a child coming into the court of law and giving a testimony. They weren't considered to have the capability to testify. And the women were considered to be the property of their caretaker. If they were unmarried, it was their father. If they were married, then it was their husband. And if their husband died, then they would pass like property to the next living male relative for them to be taken care of, for them to be looked after. As a, and it was seen as a duty and an obligation to take on like your older brother's wife. Um, and female children, uh, therefore, were valued much less than boys, and they were abandoned and exposed far more often than uh, male children, leading to a 140 to 100 ratio of men to women in the Greek and Roman time. Not very much unlike China's one-child policy that favors male children over female children. So then the physically deformed and the chronically ill this is another group that faced social ostracizing and total being outcast from society. At this time, the medical advancements of today weren't around, obviously. Nobody had any way of dealing with the spread or the carrying or the transmission of disease. There was no way to cure chronic ailments. There was no way to provide therapy and rehabilitation to people with chronic deformities that would prevent them from contributing to society. And oftentimes, people with more contagious diseases, like leprosy, a very common contagious ailment at the time, they were cast out, out of fear of the disease spreading, out of a, a, a place of quarantine on one hand, and just disgust and rejection on the other. Um, and to suffer from either of these ailments, to be ill with some sort of chronic ail uh, condition, that was especially if it was visible and gross, like leprosy, or to be physically deformed, was simply a life sentence 
to be a social outcast, to suffer without compassion or companionship, and to suffer a lonely and often painful death. And finally, the ceremonially unclean. Now, now this is a category that's a little bit specific to the Jewish culture of this day. Uh, you see, the, in the Old Testament, uh, the, law, the, the, the law was given to Moses and the children of Israel, it included moral and ethical laws, um, like the Ten Commandments, like don't kill, don't steal, um, don't covet your neighbor's things. But there was also a, a different section of the law that was ceremonial. It dealt with this idea of ritualistic cleanliness. And these laws dealt with food, such as pork and shellfish and insects. Those uh, to eat or touch those foods would be to make yourself unclean. Um, there were certain actions like touching a carcass or an unclean animal, uh, giving birth, uh, sexual intercourse. Those were actions that would lead to ceremonial uncleanliness or certain conditions like skin diseases similar to leprosy. Those would make you ceremonially unclean. And notice none of these things are morally or ethically wrong, perhaps. They're just a, a ceremonial uncleanliness that would r render you incapable of going to the temple and participating in the rituals and the sacrifices, the feasts and the festivals until you had washed yourself and made yourself ceremonially clean again. And the interesting thing, though, about this uncleanness is that it was extremely contagious. Everything and everyone that you touched became unclean. The, the chair that you sat on, the clothes that you wore, the cup that you drank out of. And if you touched someone else, they became unclean, and then the process would continue of this contagious, ritualistic, ceremonial uncleanness. And so for someone to become unclean would mean until they were able to wash themselves or uh, get a blessing from the priest of uh, being ceremonially clean once more, they were outcast and not wanted because nobody wants to become ceremonially unclean and then themselves have to discard or burn clothing or get rid of a cup or get rid of a chair. It became a nuisance, but also just kind of a social ostracizing measure. And so these three groups of people, women and children, the physically deformed and ill, and the ceremonially unclean, they were seen ultimately in this culture as worth less and deserving of less, entitled to less, and they were treated accordingly by the culture and society that surrounded them. You see, their identity underlying all of this was tied to perhaps their productivity in society, what they were able to contribute to their family, what they were able to contribute um, to their community or their neighbors. Um, perhaps it was tied to their outward presentation to the world. If you have gross uh, sores and lesions on your skin, you aren't necessarily very presentable. You aren't the best company at parties. Or perhaps some arbitrary social strata to which uh, other people said that you belonged. Oh, well, you're a woman? Oh, well, that automatically puts you down here, and it's inescapable. There's nothing that you can do about it. And with their identity tied into these, these temporary, non-moral things, their worth to the world around them was totally discounted because of that misplaced identity, and the world around them treated them with the dignity in keeping with the worth ascribed to them. You see how when we start to misplace the identity, we start to discount value and worth, and then we start to think that people deserve to be treated in a certain way. And that idea of, being, of deserving to be treated in a certain way, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but that was how people saw certain groups at this time. Um, 
why the question of like, well, why were people treated this way? Like we, we see similar ways that in which people are treated and mistreated and the population is segmented according to arbitrary standards and metrics. Well, in this time to the Jews, they thought, oh, well, you were born physically deformed. Oh man, somebody messed up. Your parents must have sinned while they were pregnant with you. Or you, when you were a small child, must have done something so terrible that God struck you with blindness or struck you with leprosy. And therefore, this is God's just punishment upon you, and therefore, you deserve everything that you're getting. And to the Greeks, it was even a more, even more um, set in the natural order of things. Aristotle, I want to put this quote up that Aristotle said, um, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. This was the social and cultural climate of the day. That to the Jews, they thought, oh, if you were born a certain way or born a certain gender or had certain conditions, this was God's just punishment upon you. And to the Greeks, they thought this was the natural order of things. This is the way that the universe works out. This is the way that the world or the universe or whatever, this is your lot in life and it is inescapable and it will forever be this way and everything, uh, like the way that I deem right to treat you, that's the right way to treat you because this is how you are slotted in. Then enter Jesus. And Jesus comes into the middle of this culture full of this oppressive Ro Roman regime ruling over them with an iron fist with might makes right as the ruling thought of the day. With the people around him, both the Jews that, that claim to follow his law, but use God as a way, as an excuse to treat other people around them with disgust and distaste. And finally, the, the more secular Greeks who thought that this was just the way that the universe worked out and some people are just unlucky in life. And Jesus comes into the midst of this. And in this passage that, passage that I wanna read through this morning, we see Jesus encountering one of these people one of the people that fits not only just one, but two of these groups.
To get an idea of what it would be like to have a temple service interrupted, picture our Sunday morning service here at CLC, all right? And now, picture back by the coffee, there's a judge settling a small claims court. And then over in kids' life, instead of yelling, screaming, hoop and hollering kids, we have a theology professor giving a lecture on Old Testament law. And then it, it, down the hall by the bathrooms on the other side, we have a neighborhood potluck, right? This was so much more than just like a church sort of feel to it. It was the center, it was the heartbeat of the community. And the second thing is that adultery was a sin that in the Old Testament law carried with it the, sin, uh, the punishment of death. It was capital punishment for both parties involved. And so this was an extremely serious accusation for them to be bringing in this woman into the public square, essentially, into the middle of a church service, interrupting a small claims court, interrupting a, a professor teaching about theology, throwing her into the middle of the room and loudly proclaiming this woman was caught in the act, not just suspected, not just we think, but she was caught in the act doing something that carries with it capital punishment. So Jesus, you say you're the son of God. So God was the one who gave us this law that tells us what to do with this woman. What are you going to do about it? And I want to zoom in on the scene here and consider what is this woman experiencing? What is she experiencing? What is she feeling at this moment? Was well, first of all, she was a woman considered by everyone around her to be no more mature or capable than a child. If there was any hope whatsoever of giving testimony to excuse herself in this makeshift court of law, it wouldn't be taken seriously. She had no hope to defend herself with her own testimony, even though the outlook was bleak at best. And she was standing trial for something that she was caught in the act of doing. There was no excuse that she could bring up that would be taken seriously to excuse her. And the man in this scenario is nowhere to be seen. That capital punishment applies to both parties. And yet the, the, uh, the Pharisees and scribes said, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Well, men too. But she is carrying the implicit guilt of both parties in this situation. The man, never hear from him. We never understand what's happen what happens to him. If he gets off scot-free, they drag him to a, a different temple. It's never really known. She is implicitly carrying that blame for both parties and is facing the penalty of death that should extend to both of them. But again, no hope whatsoever for pleading for a just trial that includes both of them. And finally, she was ceremonially unclean in the temple. She, everything and everyone that she touched became ceremonially unclean. The clothes that she wore, the people that were dragging her by the arm or by the hair into the temple. She was unclean in a place of holiness. This was the center and the holy religious and community, communal center of the community. The people around her, they probably knew her. This was a small town. This was a small church. This was a small educational center where people would come to learn about the Old Testament. Everyone there knew her, but at this moment, the only thing that mattered to them was the fact that she was caught in adultery and she needed to die. And the only reason why she was brought here was to make some point against Jesus. She was being used as a political tool in order to hopefully publicly deface Jesus. She was nothing more to them than her shame and humility defined her as. And so then let's look at how Jesus responded to this to a crowd that dragged this woman in with no regard for her, for her shame or for her dignity, for, for telling her implicitly, you are carrying the blame for the situation. Nothing that you can do will save you. 
actually, we're probably just going to stone you. We're just double-checking with this guy so that hopefully he can say something to make him slip up because we don't like him very much. So just sit there and be quiet <clears throat> and face your death. So then in John 8, starting in verse 7, this is how Jesus responded. And as they, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elites of the day, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, some of you may be thinking at this moment, Jesus is arbitrarily setting aside the law that he himself set in place, or he's excusing this woman just to maybe bypass a really tough situation. And I would say to that, I don't think that's the case. You see, Jesus' message was always about fulfilling the law. When the law was given to the children of Israel way back in Leviticus, back in the Old Testament, God was never like, this is it. This is all that you're ever going to get. When it comes to you and me, this law is the only thing that is ever going to matter between you and me. No, God always gave, God gave them the law, but then he promised them a savior from the law. God knew that this law would never bring them closer to him. That having a list of rules and having a checklist for us to follow would never bring us into relationship with God the way that he desires it to be, the way that he created and designed it to be. And so when Jesus came, his message was, I am here to fulfill the law, not to set it aside as something that's not necessary, but rather to show you, you can't do this all by yourself. But I came to bring fulfillment to the law, to bring relationship and to bring reconciliation between God and man. You see, what God desires from us, even more than just strict obedience, is a relationship with him. If you're a parent and you give your kids a list of chores to do, if that's all that they ever did, would you consider that a relationship? That's how God sees it. Yes, the law is important. The law was there to protect us from things, to guide us in the way that we should live. But when Jesus came to fulfill the law, he came so that we could come to God through him, not through this law. And in this moment with this woman, Jesus leveled the playing field completely. First of all, he didn't disregard or deny that this woman had messed up, according to the law that he set in place. He said to her, go and sin no more. Meaning, yeah, you messed up. I know that you messed up. Everyone knows that you messed up. They caught you in the act. There's no denying the fact that you messed up. But what I'm not going to do is define you by it. I'm going to see you differently than the sin that you've committed. I'm going to look beyond the mistake that you made and see something else. See something with, with a deeper identity, with greater worth. And I'm going to treat you with deeper dignity. He also didn't belittle the angry crowd that brought this woman into the midst of the public square to shine a spotlight on her shame and her humiliation just for the sake of hopefully getting one up on Jesus in the public arena. All he did was held up a mirror to them and let their own conscience be the judge of the situation. He said, oh, okay. So you think you're so good that you can hold this woman up to the law and consider her to be stoned 
and then you hold yourself up to the same law and somehow you're blameless. Is that really the way it is? I think it's kind of funny that it says, beginning with the older ones, they all left. And as time goes on, it becomes easier and easier to see the mistakes and the second chances in our past. And I want you to think back to a moment in your past where you have made a genuine, honest mistake. You have hurt someone in a real and true way. You have done something that you knew was wrong. And instead of being punished for it the way that you really should have been, you are met with kindness or a second chance. Or it was looked over because something else was more important, like a relationship with you. Did it ever feel at that time like you were being given free license to just mess up as much as you want with impunity? And that nothing matters, it's okay, the, law, the rules don't care, the rules don't matter, nobody cares what you do. Or did you feel like in that moment that you were being worth, uh, that you were being valued far more than the mistake that you had made? I think that's what Jesus was communicating to this woman here. He was saying, yes, I know that you messed up, but I'm here to tell you that your identity lies in something much deeper than the mistakes that you've made. You see, Jesus was turning this concept of dignity as the culture saw it all up on its head. There were multiple, many, many reasons why to everyone else in the room, this woman was being treated exactly how she deserved. But that didn't matter to Jesus. You see, he subverted this cultural stance of what you are worth to me dictates how I treat you and taught us this, what you are worth to God dictates how I treat you. What you are worth to God is going to dictate how I treat you. So then the question is begged then, what are you and I worth to God? Well, you're worth sending his son to die, to take upon himself the punishment for everything that you and I have ever done wrong towards uh, another person, towards ourselves, whether or not we mean to. He sent his son in order to stand in the gap and die so we could be close with God another time. That's what God means when he says that he values us, that he loves us. That's worth. That is identity that runs so much deeper than anything that you or I have ever done because God looked at the sum of everything you and I had ever done and said, I'm coming to save you anyway. And I could go on and on pointing out verse after verse and passage after passage, story after story of how Every single time that Jesus faced someone that to the culture around them deserved to be treated in a certain undignified way, worthy of no respect whatsoever, that he responded with kindness and relationship and reconciliation. He always seemed to value those surrounding him in a more intimate and personal way. I can tell you about the story of Zacchaeus, the Jewish tax collector who worked for the Roman government, all right, already kind of a tense political situation there, just like, hey, you're one of us, but you're working for the bad guys, all right, a little weird right off the bat. More than that, as he would collect the taxes, he would skim off the top in order to make a profit for himself, living a life of luxury while stealing from his countrymen. So what did Jesus do when he saw him? He said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to dine with you, a cultural sign of equality of seeing eye to eye, of friendship, of brotherhood. And in response, 
Zacchaeus vowed to repay everyone that he'd ever, ever stolen from seven times over. He did not feel like Zacchaeus' response wasn't to just go and continue stealing. His response was to make it right. I could tell you about the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. Now, the Samaritans were half Jews and half Greeks and totally rejected by both. It was a racially charged relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritan woman, well, not only was she a woman, but as Jesus pointed out to her, she was sleeping around with multiple men. And Jesus knew it. And so when Jesus came and talked to her, what did he do? He had the longest conversation that is recorded with anyone in the Bible. And he treated her as the person that she was to him, a child of God, someone worth valuing, someone worth something to God, someone worth dying for. And what was the response of this woman? She went back into the town. She told everyone, this man has told me everything that I've ever done. He's told me about all the people that I've been sleeping around with. And you know what? I think he might just be the son of God. Like she put her own life on display and said, everything that this man has told me makes me think that he's the son of God. It's amazing. And then finally, the crowd of children who thronged him as their parents were trying to bring their toddlers and their babies to Jesus to, to be blessed or to be um, taught. And the disciples were like, no, come on, get them out of here. They're kids. They can't understand this teaching. They can't benefit anything from this. You're just going to be a nuisance to Jesus. Get the kids out of here. And Jesus said, no, 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 bring the children here to me. I want to see the little kids because they're valuable to me too. And not only bring the kids to me, but hey, if you want to understand what it's like to follow me, if you want to understand what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, I want you to be more like these kids. I want you to be more dependent. I want you to be more innocent. I want you to be more vulnerable. At every opportunity, Jesus turned this idea of dignity and worth on its head. You see, he, he lived out this example of identity that every single person was created uniquely in the image of God. That's where their identity comes from. And their worth, therefore, comes from the fact that they're created in the image of God. They bear the image of the person who made them. And they are worth so much that he was willing to send his son to die for them. And based upon that infinite worth, the dignity and the respect that each person was worth, was perfectly clear in every interaction that he had with every person around him. You see, when we lose sight of our identity, who we actually are, am I the sum of everything that I've done right and done wrong? Am I what other people say that I am to them when they're feeling happy or when they're a little bit mad towards me? Am I the, the sum of my output at my work? If I get a good performance review, am I somehow better than I was before? You see, as soon as we start losing track of that identity, we start to create boxes to put people in, and we start labels to start sticking on ourselves, and categories to place people into, to then excuse the way that we decide to treat other people around us, according to that worth, according to their identity. To any other person, my little blanket bluebell would have been worth nothing more than cleaning up a spill, or wiping some mud off the shoes, or maybe getting some grease off my hands when I'm changing the oil. 
But to me and my family, the worth of that blanket was inestimable and irreplaceable. It didn't have to be valuable to anyone else. It was valuable to me. And therefore, it was incredibly valuable to my family as well. And shortly before Jesus was crucified, taking on the punishment for, the sin, dem, uh, for our sin and uh, fully demonstrating the worth and the value that he placed upon every single person on this planet, he gave a special insight to his disciples. You see, he lived a life of seeing and treating every single person for who they truly were. Every single uh, person that Jesus encountered was incredibly important. They were seen. And they were loved despite anything and everything that they'd ever done. And then, before he was crucified, in one of the final teachings to his disciples, he told his followers to see the world in the exact same way. So no, actually, let's up the ante on this. I want you to see every single person in the world, even down to the least significant, as if they were me, and then treat them accordingly. In Matthew 25, verse 40, he says this, Truly I say to you, as you do to one of the least of my brothers, you do it to me. That not only are we to see every single person around us with the identity of who they are to Christ, but to look for the least of them and say, okay, that's Jesus. And to live a life accordingly. And this simple teaching, based upon the inherent worth and identity of every person, resonated throughout history. As we talk about, as Josh was talking about how Jesus was born into humility and therefore showed greatness, then Jesus showed us what dignity meant by telling us to look at the least of these and treat them as if they are myself, with the dignity and respect that you would treat me with. In 135 AD, 100, about 100 years after Jesus died, a plague of smallpox struck the Roman Empire, and the, the estimates are, are very wildly. The smallest estimate I could find for the death toll was five million. I saw anywhere from five to 100 million in this plague of smallpox. Extremely deadly, extremely contagious, no way whatsoever to prevent the spread or this happening. It absolutely devastated the Roman army, leaving the Roman Empire fragile and open to invasion. And the response of the general populace to their friends, to their neighbors, to their family, to their wife, to their kids, was to flee, to seek isolation and quarantine so that they wouldn't catch the disease either. There was no way to treat it. There was no way to prevent it from occurring except to just get out. And the Christians saw the least of these. And they followed a man who said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And they, without any knowledge of how to prevent or treat this disease, they went towards the sick and the hurting. And they provided care and essentially hospice at times, caring for them, giving them dignity even into their death. Because they followed someone who said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. In the 300s, there were two brothers named Basil and Gregory of Nisob both pastors, both from a very well-off, educated, rich family. And they saw a community of lepers that lived outside their town in isolation, being totally excluded. Again, no way to treat or necessarily care for this disease to prevent it from spreading. Nothing was really known about it. But they followed a man who said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. 
and they started a collection to build a facility, a place where these people could come and receive care and treatment and food and love. And it became the very first hospital, the very first place where people could go and receive medical treatment. <clears throat> Gregory, uh, in a sermon on the equality of all mankind, said this, Embrace the wretched as gold. Take into your arms the afflicted as you would your own health, as you would care for your wife, your children, your domestics, and all your house. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. In the 1830s, a man named William Wilberforce died three days before the passing of a bill that would abolish the slave trade in the English colonies. He had worked on this bill for 41 years of his life. He worked with the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. And their slogan was this, am I not a man and a brother? You say they fought for the inherent worth and identity of every single man, woman, and child because of who they were, not to the people around them, not to what they were worth on the plantations or the fields or the ships or the mines, but rather who they were to God. And they said, we will fight for the dignity of every person. And it showcases the fact that it doesn't need to be in an orphanage or a hospital or a clinic or a, a refuge. That fighting for the dignity and the worth of every person happens on every single level, even up to the highest level of the ruling empire in, in their laws and in their courts. And every time you hear a bell ringing outside of King Supers or like the shoe boxes that we packed a couple weeks ago for Operation Christmas Child, or if you drive by a YMCA facility way up in the Rocky Mountains, you are experiencing the ripple effects of a person or a group of people that chose to see the world through the eyes of Jesus, and they followed a man who said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, if you have given your life to Jesus and you say, I'm going to do life your way, then frankly, this is what you've signed up for. I hope that it's not news to you that every person is created unique and special and valued and loved in the eyes of God. So as we go through our weeks, as we go and approach this stressful, busy holiday time when we get to maybe see people that we try to avoid 360 days of the year, or we get to interact with people in the mall who uh, might be closer to rabid dogs than actual people in the way that they're acting, when you encounter someone that rubs you the wrong way, or treats you unfairly, or gives you no respect whatsoever, tell them in your head, Probably best not to say it out loud, but tell them in your head what you are worth to God dictates how I treat you. And then live accordingly. And when you see someone, when you come across someone who the culture, the society around us has decided they, that they are worth less or are deserving of less dignity or respect or honor, that their worth is diminished because of some arbitrary social strata to which they belong, when you see a person like that, tell them in your head, what you're worth to God is gonna dictate how I treat you. And then treat them as if you are seeing Jesus himself with that kind of dignity and that kind of respect. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, if, if, you're, if you're new to this church or 
you, you haven't really decided whether or not you're going to make Jesus the focus and the center of your life, then there is good news for you in this. I hope that you can hear this good news. You are worth more to God than the sum of your failures and your regrets and your past mistakes. If at this moment you're in a better place than the woman who is caught in the middle of adultery and thrown into the public square, demanding that she be stoned, if you're anywhere better than that, or anywhere worse than that, Jesus still came to die for you. He still said that you're worth something to me. And I dare you to look through the entirety of Jesus' life And I want you to try to find someone that Jesus did not treat with dignity and respect because of how he views and values each person. Those mistakes and regrets and those failures, they don't have to define your life anymore. Jesus offers a new life, a new way of living. He offers a new heart, a new mind, a second chance, a world of second chances, a life of second chances to those that follow him. The one who made you and loves you and died to save you is inviting you to be in relationship with him once more. Won't you consider that this Christmas season? I hope that you will. Let's pray.